Hello, welcome to the Radical Parenting Podcast. My name is Tony Shawcross. And I'm Kara Porbaugh. Today we're uh, joined by a guest and author of the last book that we read, Heather Shoemaker, who wrote uh, It's Okay Not to Share and 29 Other Renegade uh, Rules. Heather, thank you for joining us and thank you for writing the book you wrote. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm glad you found it useful. Yeah. Uh, Kara and I try and read books that really fit in with the idea of kind of following the child's lead, really honoring our child, uh, putting that relationship with our child first. Uh, so it actually really fit uh, with the theme, but um, but also brought a lot of ideas that that hadn't been addressed in the in the twenty or thirty other books that we've read so far. Uh, Kara, you want to give a quick intro? You, you you really enjoyed the book, and so did I. Yeah, I did. I really loved it. Well, because I, I think the dilemma is like as parents, for me, my dilemma is I know what I don't want to do. Like I know I don't want to use rewards and punishments and do all the normal kind of traditional parenting stuff. But then there's like this void of what to do instead. Um, my daughter is five now, almost six. And um, so what I really found useful about your book is like, it's so specific about all these different um, ways to deal with conflict, ways to deal with, um, you know, kids choosing their own playmates or not wanting to play with certain kids or, you know, sex ed with little ones, like all these really specific ways and how we can be really honest and direct and trust our children that they're impulses are good and um, where we can step in and give guidance and, you know, the like giving real tools about words to say in specific instances where we want freedom, mm -hmm. but there's certain limits we have to set in order to create that freedom. And we could talk about more about that when we get into like some of the, the renegade rules. So I just, I found your advice so practical and helpful and really liberating in terms of creating more freedom by like tweaking certain things. So we're not going for like total permissive chaos, right? That's not what we're going for. Yeah, I think you put your finger right on it because that's what a lot of people feel is they know they want to parent differently or with a different tone than maybe how they were brought up. But the question is, what does that look like? Because when we're faced with a, with a kid who's who's maybe having a lot of anger or doing something, um, what comes out of our mouth tends to be what we heard when we were growing up. And if that's something that people have chosen not to repeat, well, then that leaves you with this great big void, as you described it. What what can I do instead? So, yeah, I did try to give specific even words to put in your mouth so that you don't have to um, think too hard when certain circumstances come up because there's um, some things that really can apply to almost all um, conflicts and that that's that's very comforting and uh, liberating as you said before we get into the specific 29 renegade rules will you, will you talk to us just about what prompted you to to write the book and what some of your influences were yeah what made you want to write the book well, I went to a preschool when I was four and five that is based on this these philosophies. It's called the School for Young Children, and it's in Columbus, Ohio, where I grew up. And my mother was a teacher there for 40 years. So I didn't just get their philosophy when I went to the preschool. I got it at home, too, all the way up, you know, even into adulthood, the kind of relationship building um, um, accepting the feelings, but not the behavior that goes with it. All these types of underlying ideas that are in this book, that was normal to me. And so when it came time for me to have my own child, I thought this is how everybody did things because this was mm. very normal. And I was looking at preschools to send my own kid and I, I thought, wait a minute, where are the boxing gloves? Why aren't they having wrestling matches? What's going on? Why are there chairs and tables? And why are they trying to push the alphabet so, so soon? And why don't they understand that this child who's crying isn't going to get over their feelings of fear or sadness just because it's time to sing a song? You know, I was really startled by it, the huge disconnect between what uh, good-hearted, well-meaning parents and adults who really truly care for kids and, and what knowledge is out there about social emotion development. And there was a big disconnect. And there was a big um, realization that the kind of preschool that I had gone to and the kind of parenting that I'd been exposed to was not well known. And people 
other parents I met in the park, people in the neighborhood, um, they were struggling with, with very basic preschool behaviors that to me were second nature. I knew exactly what to do. Um, there's many right ways to raise a child. There's not one right way. But the ideas in this book um, are founded in child development. And they are very much, uh, they're helpful to many, many families. And you do spend a lot of time on the title kind of renegade rule, which is it's okay not to share. Um, but there's so many others. I'm curious why you picked that one for the title of the book. Yeah, you know, well, originally I was going to call it Boxing at Preschool because the preschool I went to has a fantastic understanding of the needs for young kids to be physical in their friendships. And so they allow boxing matches and uh, wrestling matches. They even have pint-sized boxing gloves that they allow kids to, to put on and punch each other. Only they're friends. You can't punch someone in anger or if it's a fight. That's, that's separate. That's solving a conflict. Conflict, but for fun to have it a physical game and so I thought that would be a great title boxing at preschool but the um, the editors I was working with at Penguin said that will make people think it's only about preschools and maybe parents wouldn't pick up the book we need something much more universal we need something that that everybody can relate to and they hit on it's okay not to share because boy sharing is such a big one and you see kids who barely learn to walk being told, being ordered to share um, because we're trying to help them develop generosity and kindness and awareness of others and, and fit in well and make friends and be happy, successful people. We're trying so hard that we actually get in their way of their moral development. It's a good one. I think, you know, it kind of hit, it hit the, it's okay not to share. I think it was, it's a good choice because it hits on so many of the things. It's like that moment at the playground where, you know, we are overriding something in our child when they're involved in their own play. And we are um, disrupting that in order to do some kind of social conforming act, right? Because either we think it's right or we think another parent is going to think that's the right thing to do. And so it's, I do think it's a good, it's kind of the crux of the matter, right? Like there's all these strange things that we do that really have nothing to do with our own feelings or what our child is actually doing that, you know, where we're trying to kind of play it safe in a way or be, um, follow the social rules. And it doesn't have anything to do with development or play or what's actually going on. And that is one of the things I really appreciate in your book also, is you say over and over again, um, take your adult lenses off. And so I, there's, there's a lot that I learned about seeing what's happening, you know, without, it's something we practice in radical honesty. So Tony and I are both radical honesty trainers, which is this sort of, um, kind of personal development work based in Gestalt therapy. You know, we practice noticing with our senses and with our, you know, keen observation without adding a lot of interpretations and judgments and values. And that's really kind of the crux of this work, right? It's like, how do we see our child and really see what's actually going on for them at their developmental stage without all of our interpretations getting in the way our baggage yeah yeah our conditioning yeah and there are a lot of judging eyes <laughs> there's a lot of judging eyes at the playground there's a lot of judging eyes at family reunions or just simple get-togethers so often it is the parental pressure that kind of makes us do something but also it's our own hearts because we want to do what's right for our kids we want to raise a kind child we want to help them have a smooth path in life so we're trying to help them develop these things and just to pick on sharing because it is such a such a big topic uh, that one we actually, when we force the child to share, we are delaying their natural development of generosity. Because kids, if, if I take something away from you right now, so we're podcasting, you have a set of headphones on. If I could reach through the screen and grab your headphones off, wait a minute, you're busy using them right now. 
just because I think you've had them long enough. That's something that, that adults seem to swoop in and decide, you've had that toy long enough. You know, in five minutes, so-and-so gets a turn. Or it, it, time is so arbitrary to young children. Five minutes means absolutely nothing. When they're finished engaging with that toy or that stick or that mud puddle or whatever it is, that's when they're finished. And so if we force them to stop what they're doing and take something away, it feels absolutely terrible, right? The kid does not like that feeling, and they hear the word share being given that feeling. Well, then they associate sharing with feeling rotten. And nobody likes to have stuff taken away from them. Nobody likes feeling rotten. What we really need to associate the word sharing with is that wonderful golden glow. You know that feeling when you give your friend the perfect birthday present or when you surprise somebody with, you know, a birthday cake or whatever it is. It's something that we feel like we want to give. You feel wonderful inside. Even giving somebody a hug, if they really need that hug, you feel fantastic. And so does the other person. And you're reading all those, as you say, all the senses to, to read if this is the right thing to do. Kids are just learning all this. But they need to have the right to experience that golden glow of generosity. And they can only feel it at certain times, especially at these young ages. They won't feel it if we yank the toy out of their hand. They'll feel resentment to us, and they're not going to share when we're not watching. Maybe they'll kind of glance at us to see if any adult is watching, and they might reluctantly hand over a toy. But they're not going to feel that good feeling. So for them to experience that good feeling, it happens when they're finished using the toy, we can say, oh, remember Joey was waiting for that truck. And it's that moment that we can nudge them to help their moral development. They can rush over to the child who was waiting and say, here you go. Then both of the kids are glowing with happiness. One, because it feels good to give. And the other, it feels good to be remembered and noticed and, and respected and, and receive. So that, that's the kind of, you can't force these inner feelings. But sometimes in our, in our uh, rush to get the kids down a certain path, we actually make them backtrack a bit, and it's slower to develop. Yeah, and I'll summarize a couple other aspects of the suggestions that Heather makes in the book. And one is that you're, as a parent, you're kind of protecting this child's right to uninterrupted play. So you're reassuring your child or the other child who has the object, like, yeah, I'm going to protect your right to, to play with this item um, and remind you to, to give it to the other person when they're done. And then you're also helping the other person, the other child deal with whatever comes up for them and not being able to have this immediate gratification of this thing that they want. You're saying like, you know, I see that you're upset, anything that you need to say to be present with them and the emotions that they're feeling, and you're reassuring them, like, I'm going to remind, you know, this other child that, that you want to use this uh, as, soon as, they're, as soon as they're done. Uh, anything else you want to say about kind of the tips around navigating the, it's okay not to share? Yeah, well, Tony, you brought up the other half of the equation, which is the one that, that scares us. We have to be honest. We get scared of that waiting child. We do not want to hear them scream or stamp their foot or start yelling at us. Or You know, there's, there's deep anger and frustration and jealousy and all these true emotions that come up from the waiting child. Even if they have to wait for five seconds, sometimes it's too long and it's so hard. So... For us, being able to recognize that learning to wait and learning to cope with difficult emotions like anger and jealousy and frustration and all those things, learning to cope with those emotions is such an essential skill. And every single human feels all those emotions every day to different degrees. And for a child to um, be handed something with they want the toy, instant gratification, that does not help them learn anything except by saying, hey, he's not sharing, and that invokes instant gratification. What they need to learn instead is how to manage these big feelings because the big feelings are going to come up and they're going to come up a lot of times, especially if you're three years old or five years old. And so learning how to cope with those, learning that you can cope with them and there are methods to cope with them. In fact, the book gets into lots and lots of ways, practical ways that you can help an angry child. I mean, they can't punch the kid, but they could punch bubble wrap or um, they could punch some Play-Doh or they could go outside and run around a tree. There's so many things you can do, but you can help them channel those big feelings and let them know, oh, it's so hard to wait. 
I will help you wait. But you know, Jessica gets to play with that until she's done. When it's your turn, you can play with it as long as you want until you're done. But it's hard to wait and dealing with all those feelings. But that is so essential. If we don't, if we don't work on that skill, then we end up with adults who have a lot of trouble managing their anger, frustration, jealousy, fear, sorrow, all the big hard ones. We need to work with kids and realize it's a bit of a messy process being human and having big feelings. Yeah, amen. And that, that might be a good segue into another one of my favorite rules, which is right at the beginning of the book, which is um, kids need conflict. And like you said, Heather, isn't that what we're trying to avoid when we yank a toy away from someone and try to give it to someone else so they don't melt down? And, you know, yeah, and you have some really lovely suggestions for, you know, supporting kids in speaking directly to one another and um, saying what they want or what they like and what they don't like and helping the children to listen to each other and listen to the limits that other kids are setting, which means that um, one of my notes that I made was, you know, we're focusing on listening, on like really listening to a specific child and a specific instance, rather than making a blanket rule about you can do this or you can't do this or but the rule is when someone says stop you have to stop yeah and that requires then communicating and being genuinely in the moment about what a child wants on any particular moment absolutely i mean i i love it that you brought that particular rule up kids need conflict because that is probably the hardest one for everybody adults included we like to sidestep conflict like nobody's business we like to avoid it in our own lives we like to avoid it for our children and so we we do all sorts of things to minimize their chances to experience it but if kids don't experience conflict how are they ever going to learn how to cope with it as I mentioned in the book, they do not learn about peace by singing kumbaya and songs about peace. You mm. learn about peace by gaining the skills to resolve conflict. It involves um, confrontation, meaning in a good way, meaning directly, as you said, talking to the other kid. It involves listening. It involves being specific. And it involves those big feelings because hardly anybody can cope with conflict without feelings being stirred up. So it's, it's everything. It's, it's, it's the answer to, you know, um, division between nations and diplomacy. It's, it's the answer with divorce and family difficulties, conflict and emotions. This is, this is the fundamental work of early childhood and the skills that we build here are essential for these children, not just right now, but through their entire lives. And the kids who have mastered this, the world is theirs. Uh, so one thing with conflict that we see with kids is one kid will scream or go into a rigid body stance or do something so that we know there's a problem. And then we say, you know, what, what's going on? He's mean. She's mean. We get these kind of blanket mm. statements that don't mean anything. They're just vague. They're just a signal that says something's wrong. She did something I didn't like. He did something to me I didn't like. It's just kids don't have the vocabulary. They usually just go right to a blanket statement. He's being mean to me. So you have to get that. take that as a signal that something's up. There's a conflict. Oh, wonderful. Now we have an opportunity to help the kids experience conflict and gain some conflict mediation skills. They're not going to learn it all in one day. That's why they need to experience conflict over and over and over. But, but over time, they do gain the confidence. And one of the things is just to be able to come back together in the same space and be able to talk directly to the other kid. This is not easy. Some kids will do this by whispering. You know, they can't talk aloud. Or maybe they can only have the, the courage, the emotional courage to whisper in your ear and they can't actually talk to the other kid. That's okay. They're learning. Just say, but then repeat their words. I hear Jessica say she doesn't like it when you um, throw water on her or that throw water on her picture or knock down her block tower or whatever it is, but be very specific because the, the things about being mean or, or I don't want to be where he is, you need to know what it is that somebody did that they don't like. 
and from there you can find out what's going on. You can deal with the emotions on both sides. There's not a bad kid in the situation. There are two humans with big feelings and somebody doesn't like something or maybe they both don't like something and they have to listen and figure out what's going on. And until you work out those feelings and the specifics, you can't move on to any solution. Sometimes people just try to go right for the sorry. Yeah. Say you're sorry. Well, just like generosity, you can't force remorse. It has to come from inside. Mm. You can model saying sorry, but what works much better with kids is getting specific. You know, whether it's purposeful or accidental. I mean, kids are not angels. Maybe they crash their bike into the other child on purpose. It doesn't really matter at this point. It matters that the child who feels wronged will feel safe again. And that there is a guarantee that that behavior will stop. So if the kid who was rammed into by the bicycle, um, you need to bring the kids back. Maybe um, go get an ice pack, you know, go get a Band-Aid, she's bleeding, or go get her teddy bear. Do some action to bring the kids back together if it's a physical thing. And then say, wow, your bike rammed into her leg and now it's bleeding. You can point it out. Um, don't ask for a sorry, though. Ask for ask for a guarantee it's not going to happen again. Because when I hear a kid say, sorry, in that little high-pitched, insincere voice, I have no trust that they actually feel sorry or that they're not going to do the same thing the next minute. Right? There's no trust established there. But if you say, I am not going to ram my bicycle into you again on the playground, that's very specific. That's what the kid wants to hear. They don't want to get hurt again. So if you can get the specific guarantee, most of the time, the kids who make that verbal guarantee will live up to it. But there are days and times, maybe they didn't have enough food or a nap or they just can't hold it together that day. Just say, it's too hard for you today. And if they've made that guarantee and they can't hold on to it, just take that kid away and say, oh, it's too hard for you today. You said you wouldn't knock over the tower again, and you did. I will help you by moving you to a different spot so you can't hurt the tower. So you have to and then be the enforcer. But it's 95% of the time they will live up to it if they make a guarantee. Yeah, and in this rule, or maybe it was in another one, you say it, it's this is repeating what you just said, but we don't want to force apologies, but it is okay to kind of force a, a re reparative action, like getting a Band-Aid or to force a promise, like I promise I won't do that again. And I want to say that as an adult, I, I don't like sorry personally. Like it doesn't do me any good for another human to feel bad. I don't, that's not my goal in life is for another human to feel bad. I would always rather hear a promise of some sort uh, then, then, yeah, then an apology or, or for someone to just feel sorry. So I think that that works for, for all of us. And a promise that sticks to it too. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the word forced, you know, we can, we can play around with that. It's generally just, you're the adult, you're the one who is guiding them through life. You're bringing them together. Um, if a kid really can't handle being together, I wouldn't physically force them together, but I would try to get the two, you know, you need to come back to this situation, try to guide the situation. And once in a while, it's not the right moment. You know, there'll be other times, there'll be other times to try to fix a problem. So not every single conflict has to have a, a perfect resolution because sometimes there's too many in one day and you, you got to pick which ones will, will work out. Who's, who's in a stable mood at the moment. What I like about that whole process you're describing is, you know, there's no real, there's no blame or shame or labels. It's just about the facts. You know, your bike ran into his leg and it's now it's bleeding. Those are just facts and saying, we're going to really like, just, you know, be with these facts and like talk about it and address it and stay together, stick together. And like, that's the real heart of our work in radical honesty too, because we didn't learn any of this when we were kids, is that, you know, when we go through this messy process and have our big feelings and stay together and not avoid it or run away or decide not to talk about it, then we can genuinely get to some other spontaneous transformation of, of feeling differently on the other side, you know, of possibly feeling remorse or possibly feeling, you know, 
whatever we actually feel right. rather than thinking that there's some script of what we're supposed to feel that we just stick together and we stick with the facts and we um, work it out in this messy way with our human selves. Yeah, I love that. I, I think also um, adults, <laughs> adults often, and some adults more than others, I don't necessarily want to pick on women, um, but some people talk way too much to kids. There's just way too much talk, especially if there's a conflict. So sometimes we just jabber on and on and on and on. If we just have a few key phrases that we can say, and then sometimes the kids need um, just a little talk and then they're done. I mean, they got the point and we don't need to belabor it. Other times they need action. So a lot of these ideas I have with emotions, it has very little talk at all. You might just say something like, wow, you're mad. I can't let you hit me, but you can hit this pillow. I mean, acknowledging you're mad, but then we're not talking about it. We're just giving them alternative things that they can get their big feelings out without hurting people or property, you know, without breaking the fish tank or knocking over pots from the stove or, um, you know, whatever might be happening or, or hurting the cat. So we're making sure they have parameters where they can express their feelings appropriately, but we're not talking and talking and talking and talking because sometimes a little talk goes a long way and the kids will just tune it out. Great. Um, I want to, I don't want to belabor to this one point, but I also love what you say about encouraging the two kids in conflict to, to face each other and talk and whether it's whispering or whether it's whatever level they're able to. Um, I know people firsthand in life who in a way, in an attempt to avoid the sensations that come up when they face conflict with another human will literally spend years and hundreds of thousands of dollars and legal fees and other things just to not experience that sensation that comes up when you just deal with a conflict that's arising for you and when you deal with the sensations that arise in your body. So for me, part of why I do this podcast, part of my parenting style is I'm using my child and my parenting practice as a crutch to be the person I want to be, to be who and how I, I want to be anyway. And, uh, so yeah, this is great practice, not just for my child, but it's great practice for me just to remind myself that I too have these feelings that I avoid and that Absolutely. I don't want to feel. And I too can just sit there and just feel them sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Tony, that I'm so glad you brought that up because I honestly think this is so hard for adults and that's why we have trouble letting kids go through it. But, um, for adults, when you're coaching your child through a conflict of who who stepped on somebody's painting, you know, that they just finished, it was drying on the sidewalk and another kid walks over it and this is traumatic. Who stepped on the painting? This is a conflict. You know it's not the end of the world because you're older and you have vision. They're going to paint another picture in five minutes. But to them, this is a big trauma. When we coach a kid through a conflict, we are actually teaching ourselves how to cope with our own conflicts because we're repeating things like, wow, that makes you mad. Wow, you feel so sad about that. Or, yeah, that's frustrating. You have to wait. Whatever it is, it's the same thing that it happens to you with um, you know, any kind of family relationship or job relationship or anything. It's just, wow, you're feeling mad about that right now. You didn't like what she did. You didn't like how she sent that email or whatever it is. It's And then when you just distill it down to the very basics, and as Caro is saying, um, just state the facts. Somehow it doesn't seem like such a gigantic mountain anymore to our own adult eyes. And every time we practice through our children, we're gaining those skills ourselves, and that's so essential. Great. All right. We haven't even gotten out of the first three uh, rules yet. We got 26 left. Uh, <laughs> but that's the foundational yeah. part, Good. Tony. So well, I want to talk good. about the other foundational part, which is that rule of if it's not hurting people or property. And I kind of want to ask, I, my, mentally, I just kept inserting like animals as well, because I generally don't want to hurt uh, animals. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But if it's, it's okay if it's not hurting people and property. It's just something to help you rem remember. Like two Ps, people, property, that just helps you think, okay, 
that's how I remember it. But yeah, add in the plants, add in the animals, add in. <laughs> when I went out to talk to people in California, they were saying, what about the trees? I said, put in the trees. That's fine. But just remember, it's, if it's not hurting people, that means their bodies or their feelings, right? People are, are more than one thing. It's not hurting people and it's not hurting stuff like your house or, you know, something that you treasure, something that's important. If it's not hurting things that, that matter to people or living things, then it's okay. Um, and let's just say with, with roughhousing, it's not hurting anybody, but maybe wrestling in the location the kids have chosen is not the right place. Like wrestling under a pot of boiling water in the kitchen is not the right location. The game is not the problem. It's, the, it's usually timing or location. So how can you say yes to something? You may have to alter where it's taking place or when it's taking place. Like, um, I'd love to read a book to you, but right now it's nap time and we've already read our books. So it's not that reading books is a bad thing. It's that right now it's time to do something else. So just shifting around timing location can really help you say yes to a lot of things that kids come up with. And this is a recurring theme that comes up in a lot of books. I feel like Alfie Cohn probably hit on it the most. Like, just question yourself. Do you need to be controlling this activity? Do you need to be restricting this activity? Is it really necessary? It's a question that comes up kind of rarely. And I'm in a lot of like moms groups and parents groups who are like, how can I get my kid to X, Y, or Z? And Alfie Cohn and you and a lot of our other, uh, you know, authors have just said, well, first ask that question. Why do you need to get your child to do this X, Y, or Z? Um, so that's that's really the point, I think, of that thing, too. It's not even about the trees and the people and the property. It's more just like all these other ways that we try and influence and, and mold and manipulate and shift our children's behavior where it would be best not to. And I think it teaches so much confidence for kids to just let them do their thing as much as possible. You know, like the more that we say no and that they have this reason to doubt their internal compass and accept some external judgment of right and wrong and should and shouldn't um, instead of their own nature, which in my opinion is really wise and really right on a lot of the time, the, the, the rarer we make that, the more confidence that confidence they'll build. And I think, yeah, that's the full title of your book is raising, a <clears throat> raising competent and compassionate kids, right? Yeah. Yeah. So competence goes right in there. Yeah. yeah I think sometimes if you find yeah. yourself saying no too much, you can say to yourself, what would it take for me to say yes to this? It's, and I'm talking mostly about play mm -hmm. ideas. You know, what would it take for me to say yes? Maybe they want to play a game of dripping paint on the floor. Um, it makes really neat splatters, interesting patterns. Maybe it feels nice. There's a sensory element to that. Well, maybe you can have, say yes to that dripping paint idea um, if they're using the kid-friendly paint, not the special ones that you bought for your own art project. Or maybe you can say yes to it if you move it outside because that's in your house where dripping paint works best. So where can you, how can you, what would have to change for you to say yes to something? And as far as, you know, freedom and limits and all those things, there's so much more that we can say yes to if we just focus on the basics, which is giving them the rhythms of the day where they get adequate sleep. That can, that can help solve a lot of conflicts and emotions right there. And then, you know, obviously we do pretty well with the giving them enough food. The rest of it's guiding their emotions when they, when they come to us with emotions, which is a can be a full time job with some kids in some days. Yeah, you know there was something that I've you know I as as we as Tony said you know we've read so many authors that you so many of them you mentioned in your book you know like Faber and Maslich and Alfie Cohn and you know um, and it never quite clicked for me in the same way you know. Um, my big journey as a parent, you know, with my very feisty five-year-old is, um, is, is setting limits, you know, because I do have this like urge to give her as much freedom as possible and to um, give her lots of time to free play and, you know, to be really honest and open about everything that we can be. 
And so limits to me always seem restrictive. It seems like I'm taking something away from her. And I was able to like flip my thinking about that and to say, setting a really clear limit, like you can wrestle outside, but you can't wrestle in the kitchen while I'm cooking dinner is a, is a real gift. You know, I'm giving her a gift by setting that clear limit where yeah, it's liberating, right? You know, like you talk about having a safety corner in the, at the, um, the school for young children, where there is a place where there is no rough housing. So by having that rule where there, here is a space where there's no rough housing here, then the rough housing or wrestling or boxing or whatever can go on really free and truly be free because if somebody doesn't want to rough house for whatever reason, they have another place to go. Right. And they can observe it because sometimes it's fascinating. Yeah. To watch it. Some kids want to watch something, but not be part of it physically. They're not emotionally or socially ready to be part of it, but observation is a great way of learning too. So yeah, I, I love what you just said because I think a lot of people who, who are, don't want to express too much authority as adults, go a little bit too far the other way, and then they have complete chaos because it's too permissive. Um, but we get worried about that fine line of, well, how do we, how do we give the kids freedom yet not have um, complete chaos? And it's really about sensible limits. And that's why I like the, is it hurting people or property or animals, Tony? Is it hurting? Is it hurting anything? If it's not hurting anything, then we can say yes to it. Um, so that's something that we can run through our minds so that we can decide, well, what kind of limit do I need to set so that the, the um, play can go on? Or do I need to set a limit at all? Maybe it's fine. Maybe it's just not something I would want to do. Maybe I don't like to spend my day whacking a tree with a stick, but maybe my kid needs to do that for an hour. Maybe it's not my choice of activity. doesn't mean that, there's, it's, that it's bad, that there's anything wrong with it. So we can, by running those questions through our heads, we can decide, yeah, and, and give them the freedom to explore things. I think, too, with limits is we have to remember that when we give kids rights um, to explore and play, that we have to remember that we as parents have rights, too. Just because we're letting kids have rights to play doesn't mean we're giving up our rights. And it's a balance. Limits are a balance between one person's right to explore the world and the next person's right maybe not to have their ears hurt. So maybe the kids want to play a screaming game. Is there anything wrong with that? Well, if they're right next to the sleeping baby, well, there's a location problem. Or maybe they're right next to you and one scream was okay, but... Um, you know, 15 minutes of constant screaming is hurting your ears. So you need to say, that hurts my ears. If you want to keep screaming, go do it in the basement. Go outside. It's, again, it's, it's not stopping the activity, but it's realizing you have to stand up for yourself too. Just because they're being free and being kids and playing doesn't mean that you give up every human right that you've ever had. You need to enjoy your life as well and realize, let's say it's a shooting game. Um, we have a whole chapter about, you know, weapon play and toy bombs and guns and that kind of thing, which is a big controversial issue for a lot of parents. Well, maybe it's okay for you if the kid plays with a toy gun, but not if you point it, get pointed at yourself. If you're not comfortable with that, you have to say, you know what, that makes me scared when you point it at me. So you can shoot the trash can, but you can't shoot it at me. Whatever it is that you feel comfortable with, it's okay to set that limit. Your kid is not going to crumble. They're resilient and they can accept limits. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Self-care is another issue that comes up over and over in the books where if, as parents, we aren't really taking care of ourselves and watching our own needs and, and, and advocating for ourselves. It's going to be that much harder for us to be who we want to be for our kids. So I appreciate you bringing that up in that context. Um, and we've got maybe 15 or 20 minutes left. I want to hit on some of the more kind of kind of controversial ones, or at least ones that I personally struggled with. So one is the one you just mentioned. So let's just talk about the the guns. I, I definitely don't want my... I, I, I'm so worried that playing with guns isn't just playing with guns, that it's somehow legitimizing or glorifying violence in some way, that it's somehow legitimizing or glorifying oppression in some way, uh, war. I, I, I'm so much against all those things, violence, oppression, war. Um, so, yeah, so it's not, it wasn't totally easy for me to, 
to wrap my head around it, but I really found that chapter compelling and wanted you to, to be able to talk a little bit about that. It's uh, the chapter's called Bombs, Guns, and Bad Guys Allowed. Yeah, that is such a hard topic, and you're certainly not the only one to struggle with this. I think we have to follow the child's lead as far as imaginary play goes, in that some kids, and not all children, but some kids are very, very drawn to weapon play. Everything, I mean, I ask people, what have you seen turn into a sword or a gun? I mean, every answer under the sun comes up. Legos turn into that. A cracker, a banana, a candy cane. You know, um, I've even seen a toilet plunger. <laughs> there, was a, there was a mom, um, at uh, a co-teacher at my mother's preschool, and she was, just like you, very concerned about very legitimate adult concerns. Peace, war, oppression, weapons, everything. And so this was the 70s. She drove a VW van, had peace beads, wore tie-dyed shirts. She was peace all the way. And her oldest child was fascinated with toy guns, and the next-door neighbor was doing some games with that. They were both four years old. And since she didn't allow toy weapons, her son um, grabbed the toilet plunger and ran around outside using the toilet plunger as his pretend gun because he really needed to engage in this kind of play. So uh, we can't force our own feelings on this. Wherever you are as an adult is a fine place to be. But the book does give some sort of steps and limits that can help you feel comfortable to allow your child to do this kind of play if the child needs to do this kind of play. Um, a kid who's constantly interested in weapon play and turns every long cylindrical object into a weapon needs a chance to explore the ideas under this. There's a lot of ideas about moral development, good guys and bad guys going on. What does it feel like to be a hero? A lot of times groups of kids will get into this kind of play um, and if you watch what they're actually doing, they are developing amazing pro-social skills by figuring out the rules of who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. Um, oh, I'm dead now, now I'm not dead. All this kind of stuff is actually very... Um, very advanced thinking emotionally and socially and imaginatively. Um, also, there's often a lot of physical where they're running and chasing and that kind of thing. But they may be holding their fingers to look like a gun or they may be picking up sticks or they may be using an actual toy weapon to help them with this imaginary play. It's explorations of power. It's explanations of um, good and bad and hero and, and anti-hero. It's it's the big stuff. It's, it's religion. I mean, they're... It, some people call this moral and epic play. It's very attractive to the preschool age group. Mm. Um, it's attractive to other ages, too. You know, we go to the movies to watch some quest or some great battle with swords and sorcery. It's very intriguing to the human mind, and it's in all the stories we tell them. Whether you're you know, teaching them Bible stories or whether you're teaching them fairy tales, they get these kinds of ideas um, from the culture around them. And whatever kids get, they have to process. Play is their way of processing. And they, um, my brother, who's a complete pacifist, as a preschooler, had to do a lot of gun play to cope with his moral feelings about, about peace. Um, it, so sometimes, sometimes it's the most fearful children the ones who are the most scared of the world, who load their, their underwear and their pants pockets with toy guns and toy weapons because they're very scared of the world. As they gain these social skills and emotional skills and conflict skills, they often will shed the toy weapons as props of courage and be able to deal with the world on their own terms. Um, so it's not something that you can tell a kid to stop being interested in. If you tell a kid, we don't play with toy guns, we don't play with toy weapons, that doesn't stop their interest. They just take it behind your back. And that, to me, is much scarier because you do not want a young child to be fascinated with guns and know that you don't like it, and so they do everything behind your back because you can actually get into real-life dangerous situations if they find a real weapon and don't have your training in your eyes. I'd much rather see a kid who's interested in toy weapons do that play in front of my eyes rather than behind my back. And if you're worried about the violence of the ideas, watch how they interact with each other. So if one kid falls down and scrapes her knee, you know, and, and hurts, there's a physical hurt, how do the other kids react? 
Is there a, are they reacting to real life with empathy? Look for those sorts of clues, how they solve problems and figure things out. No, I want to be Batman. No, I want to be Batman. So how do they figure out their differences and their roles, and how do they respond to real-life pain, rather than how gruesome is the idea? Like, the uh, atomic crocodile just ate my leg. It doesn't matter how, how gruesome the ideas are, as long as in real life they react with, with as much um, awareness and, and empathy as they can. Awesome. But it's a, it's a struggle. There's a lot here. And, and if we had hours and hours, there's a lot of racial concerns here, too, and what you'd allow a child of different skin color, a different culture, different neighborhood to play with. Maybe this kind of play can only be done within the safety of your living room. Maybe it can't be done in the front yard. Maybe it can't be done at the park. So this is a huge topic, and we're only scratching the surface. But for those of you who want to dive into it, um, the rule, as you mentioned, Tony, about toy weapons at least it'll get you thinking about some of this and, and see where you and your family land, what's right for you and your child. Awesome. Yeah. I didn't want to encourage like trucks or like all the kind of gendered toys with my son either. And, and I just follow his lead. So maybe, maybe in a couple of years I'll be wearing like a gun shirt. Cause I'm wearing like trash truck shirts now. Cause, <laughs> cause he's so into trash Excellent. trucks. Yeah. Trash trucks are fun at a certain age. Yeah. Yeah. You won me over with that chapter, actually. Like, guns are one of the only things that I've always been like, nah, let's not do that. But, um, you know, again, it's the same thing you just said, Tony. My daughter is like fully into, you know, the princesses and everything pink and all that <laughs> stuff. And I'm like the mom who like takes a shower every four days and never wears makeup or like, you know, I wore like men's clothes till I was 30 years old, you know? And so, and I, I I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> but I've really tried to keep my own baggage out of it. And just, I, I can't, like you said, she is going to be interested in that stuff, whether I like it or not, whether I approve or not. And yeah, you won me over when you said, I think in that chapter where you said, you know, by observing a child and seeing this spark of interest, um, you know, there ha there's something happening there that you can't just turn away from, you know, if a child is really drawn to something, um, then there's something going on there that they need to play with or work out or whatever. This actually reminds me, this whole question reminds me of, um, we did a workshop with Aletha Salter on therapeutic play and hand in hand parenting has a similar thing about power play where, you know, they don't talk about guns, but there's this whole therapeutic element when kids get to play with power and when they get to be the strong one and the big one and, and the one who saves somebody or the one who um, is, is, is strong and powerful. Gets to be the mom or gets to be the dad or gets to be the teacher. That's power play too. And also yeah. with um, uh, the princess, before I forget, in, in my second book, It's Okay to Go Up the Slide, there's a whole chapter on pink and princess. <laughs> So, because um, a lot of a lot of particularly moms get freaked out by the pink phase and doesn't yeah. necessarily last forever, but you can't turn it off. Uh, you can do certain things, but um, yeah, you follow their lead. Another interesting thing about the weapon play is often it involves death play and an exploration of death. Because if you think about the age that you learned that you were going to die someday, it's in those preschool years. Most people, three, four, five. And that's a big, heavy idea. And kids are just grappling with the enormity that they're going to die someday, that their parents are going to die someday, that their dog is going to die someday. This is heavy stuff. And so sometimes a lot of that play comes out, that processing about mortality comes out mm. in, in the play and often in weapon play. So it, it's moral development in a lot of levels, but it's sometimes really hard for us to see that. Yeah, and thank you so much for writing that whole chapter about death. Um, you know, I my father just died a few months ago, um, and my daughter was very close with him. You know, mm -hmm. they lived we they lived very close to us, and it was amazing to me to see her reaction to his death because she was not perturbed at all. You know, she gets sad sometimes, and we of course talk about him stuff, but she really took it in stride in a way that I was incredible. You know, we, I mean, we were with him 
just a few hours after he died. We were with him a few hours before he died. And again, right after he died and she was able to feel his body, you know, which to me was, <laughs> and I may cry right now talking about it. You know, to me, it was yeah. very um, disconcerting and disturbing to feel, you know, my father's body be cold and, yeah. and stiff. Mm-hmm. And she did not have that reaction. So again, it's the adult lenses of she's just was taking it in in a whole different way. First, I'm sorry for your loss. And it's so recent, too. And it's also amazing that you were able to bring your child and felt comfortable bringing your child into the death scene. Um, Not many young kids or, or adults get to experience that immediately in life. And you know, not being scared. It is just part of life, but it's something that just like conflict, we run away screaming the other direction. Um, So having a child who's able to see that her mother is sad, but yet including her in in these um, enormous life passages is, is such a wonderful accepting so yeah very few people want to talk about the death chapter or the sex ed chapter but I think they're they're essential they're they're part of us as humans and um, all the I tried to put in these renegade rules all the topics nobody likes to talk about you know conflict big angry feelings death weapon play all the things we disagree about excluding friends all that kind of stuff all the things that we really don't like to touch with a 10-foot pole that's what early childhood is all about and once we get not so squeamish about talking about those things and about just accepting them and guiding, putting a few limits where they need to be, but then guiding ourselves and our emotions through it. It's not so scary, and we can feel and sit with those sad feelings, like the loss of a father, which is one of the biggest ones in life, and we can sit with the joy, too, and help our kids come along with us. Well, I like that you guys touched on the Rule 27, which is the one about death. Um, You mentioned just briefly the sex ed starts in preschool. I'd like you to maybe just, if you would, briefly talk on the the uh, stop saying good job. It's come up in a few in a few in a few books that we've read, but um, but it's a hard habit to break. And so I'd like your angle on it. Yeah, I mean, any speech habit is hard. like saying the word like a lot, there's all kinds of speech habits that are they're hard to break. And good job is one that has infiltrated into our culture. We hear it all over the place. If you've um, read books like Alfie Cohn's and a lot of other people, there's many voices saying, stop it with the rewards, whether they're verbal rewards or gold stickers or all that kind of thing. Um, also, how we how we acknowledge what kids want and what humans adult wants is to be seen. We want to be seen and acknowledged and accepted for who we are. And if we've done something kind of interesting, like, watch me, watch me, watch me. No, I'm going to do it again. You didn't see. You know, maybe they're, they're making a big splash in the swimming pool, whatever it is that they're doing. Um, sometimes kids want to just be seen. They don't need to be saying, wow, that was amazing or good job. You did it all the time. But just say, I see you. Um, that was a big splash. Um, okay, now do 10 more splashes on your own because I'm going to read my book. I mean, you don't need to watch everything they're doing. But they need to know that you're there um, and not necessarily that they need that pat on the back for every single thing they do. Or especially with girls, since you brought up the Pink Princess stuff, Kara, uh, maybe say something about, wow, you got to the top of the climber. Instead of saying, good job. When they say, see, look at me, you can say, I see you're at the top of the climber. That's that's another fact-based thing, like saying you rammed into her with your bike and your knees bloody. It's just a fact. I see you're at the top of the climber. Or if they come twirling by you wearing a sparkly tutu, instead of saying, wow, good job, you're so pretty, you'd say things like, I see you have a sparkly dress on. It's just a statement. It's, I see you, I acknowledge you. I'm not praising you for being pretty. I'm not praising you because, yay, you got to the top of the climber. I'm just saying, I see you're at the top. Or, I see you're dangling by one hand off the monkey bars. You know, whatever it is that that you see, rather than, oh, that's so wonderful. Oh, you're great. Oh, good job. 
And then when, sometimes you want to say that stuff. It sounds more genuine. They, they can tell. I had one grandmother who lavished the praise on every single thing but never really listened to what we said. And the other one hardly ever praised, but maybe once every five years. But if she said that was a good story, boy, you knew it was a good story. And what do you think about that? I mean, what if you are just kind of gushing and you're just, I mean, part of me thinks when I'm, when I'm just like gushing over something my son or any other child does, part of me thinks it's not good to withhold that. It's not good to suppress that. And then another part of me thinks like, but why are you making this about you and your approval and your, your perspective of them, you know, and, you know, so I, I, I see both sides, but sometimes, yeah, I'm just like so overtaken with, with pride or joy or admiration that I just like want to express it, you know? And I can see that even in those moments when it's super genuine, that it actually could have some unintended long-term consequences. Yeah. I mean, so I think if you are really excited about something your your child does, you're probably not going to ruin him for life if you say, yay, because you're really excited. I mean, I likely he'll be fine either way. But if you find that you think you might need to hold back sometimes, it's okay. There, there's, there's a book called Duct Tape Parenting. Sometimes it's okay to just clamp down and do they really need this right now? Um, so... You could give him a big hug, but maybe not after every single time that he goes up the climber. Maybe at the end. <laughs> so it, it's, it's finding balance, and you know your own family best. But we're trying to get the relationship solid, not every little achievement. That they're seeking your, your affection and your approval in general for their life, not for every little thing that they did. You know, um, not every report card, not every picture, because if they're drawing a picture or painting a picture, it's the process that counts, not the final product. And so sometimes we, we gush over, oh, wow, look at this picture. It's so pretty. And you did the bird and you did it. Well, it was the process of them doing it that mattered. Maybe they don't even care about the final product. So sometimes we misplace our gushing onto things that don't matter. And over time, the kid will start to think, oh, it's a product that matters. I need to please my parent by doing this product over and over and not just being themselves. So it's a little tricky, but either way, the love will come out. Yeah, it comes out plenty. Kara, uh, do you have anything else you want us to hit on before we let Heather go? Um, if... If we have time, I would love to hear your your take on, um, I really enjoyed the moments in the book where you talk about the culture clash between parenting this way and then being with other families that parent a different way. And um, I know we're almost out of time, but if you have any like nuggets, of course, there's lots in the book already. And I find that such a interesting navigation to, to do. Yeah. Well, thanks for bringing that up. So it's a good place to end because if you're listening to this podcast, you already have this, you know, radical mindset or you're trying to learn a little bit about a different way of doing things. Um, and you know firsthand that the world does not behave this way all the time or that you may be with um, some people where it works really well or maybe it works with one side of the family but not the other or maybe it works at home but not at the playground. So this is a practical book. And there are times where these ideas just don't flow well with outside expectations. And so there's ideas at the end of every single chapter that say, well, how does this work when it clashes with what other people are doing at school, at the playground, at the children's museum, wherever you are? And how do you cope with that? So there's specific ideas, grocery store rules of, okay, what do you do? Do you have a long turn at the swing at the park when there's all these other kids there? And you have to navigate all these ideas. Uh, issues yourself, for what's right for your own family and your own situation. But you have to expect that there will be conflict. Just like there is conflict everywhere, there will be conflict in different ways to raise kids. And it's okay to go your way as long as your kid or yourself aren't hurting other people or property. You can raise them your way. But you have to understand that some people won't like that and that you may not be doing what's popular. 
as more people read this book and thousands and thousands have, and I now give, you know, presentations in Australia and Canada and Hong Kong and all kinds of places. So more people are getting these ideas. The ideas do spread. And sometimes within a community, like a certain school or a certain play group, you can be in a, in a zone where a lot of people like these ideas and will be helping each other to practice them. But there's times where you say, you know, this is not where we're going to have a long turn. We, we're not going to take a long turn at the Children's Museum. And you warn your kid ahead of time. So, um, yeah, there's lots of ideas of how to navigate in the real world because we're, we don't have any fantasy here. We, we have real life, real kids in the real world. Um, and thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you for joining us on the Radical Parenting Podcast. Uh, we'll be issuing new episodes every week or two. You can also listen online Bye. at RadicalHonesty.com as well as on the radio at Denver Open Media, 89.3 FM HD3, 92.9 FM in Denver. Uh, thank you again for joining us, Heather. We'll see you guys soon.